Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 1977 classic, Star Wars. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. A long time ago, in a recording studio far, far away from Hollywood, John Williams raised his baton and began conducting the most popular film score in history. Actually, that's not my own opinion, since I rank Star Wars third in my list of the best John Williams scores. In 2005, the American Film Institute ranked Star Wars as the number one score in its list of the top 25 in history. Better than Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, Psycho, and The Godfather. And there's really no argument there. The score won an Oscar, three Grammys, and pretty much every other music award available. If you've been listening to this podcast from the beginning, you'll understand that Williams did not get the job to compose this score by accident or by chance. It took decades of study and hard work, almost two decades of work in some not-so-great films honing his craft, and a long time cultivating relationships for years in Hollywood. It was Steven Spielberg who suggested Williams to Star Wars director George Lucas mere weeks after the score to Jaws became a mainstream hit. Lucas was thinking about taking the approach Stanley Kubrick took in 2001 A Space Odyssey, namely using pre-existing music in his movie. Thank goodness Spielberg stepped in to nix that idea. I've spoken a couple of times on this podcast about the friendship Williams had with Andre Previn, who spent most of his life in the concert hall, but mentored Williams on the art of film scoring. The two had worked together on Previn's song score for Valley of the Dolls in 1968, but knew each other long before that. Previn was the principal conductor of the London Symphony Orchestra in 1976 when the directors of that illustrious group thought about returning to the business of playing on film soundtracks. Previn had the intuition to reach out to John Williams in 1976 about doing his next score with the LSO, and that score was set to be, quote, this little space movie called The Star Wars, end quote, according to a recollection by Previn in 1980. Knowing that Williams planned to record the score in England, Previn decided this movie would be the London Symphony Orchestra's return to film score performance after a decade or so away. And that leads us to the very special guest joining me on the show today. I am honored to be talking with Sir Clive Gillinson, who was a cello player with the London Symphony Orchestra when they were booked to perform the Star Wars score. Sir Clive, it is an honor and a privilege to have you here on the Baton Podcast. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and especially to talk about somebody who I hold in such high regard. So can you believe that it's been 42 and a half years since you were in that room recording the Star Wars score? Well, in lots of ways, I can't believe it's that long. I mean, partly because the memories are so vivid still as well. I mean, it really is as if it's something that happened very recently. And it was such a big part of all our lives as well to be part of that project and the beginning of that journey with John. 
Now, obviously, you had been working with the LSO for about six years before you started working on Star Wars, and I'm sure you have a lot of vivid memories of all that, but is it because this turned out to be such a landmark score and such a a landmark film that these memories are sticking with you? Well, I think it was because the music was so great. We were part of making history, which, of course, we didn't realize when we were sitting in the studio doing the the film recording. And the interesting thing was when we were recording it, because of the way you record, you don't record episodes in order. Um, You know, so you're you have no sense of the story, no sense of the narrative. And in those days when one was recording, one had the film up on a big screen behind the orchestra. So we were all half turning around and and watching and looking at the film whilst we were recording the music. We all thought the music was incredible, but none of us realized that this was actually going to be a great film and a huge success because it just looked like a, you know, kind of a, you know, a boy's um, thriller, um, sci-fi thing. And, you know, there was no sense of the totality. You can't hear the words, so you don't hear any of the humor or the irony or, you know, any of the things that were so brilliant about the film. And, the you know, and all of us felt, you know, incredible music, but, uh, you know, we're amazed that anybody's actually making this film. And then George Lucas, um, who is always incredibly generous and always involves everybody um, in his projects, then did a a screening for everybody in the UK who'd been involved. So it wasn't just us. It was a lot of the special effects people and so on. So we all went along with relatively low expectations um, of what the film would be. And I always remember that at the end... Uh, there was a roar went up, you know, because every it was the first time any of us had had a sense of what the film was as a film. And, and we all thought it was fantastic. Um, but we'd had absolutely no idea about that because we hadn't heard a single word that was being spoken. Um, you know, all we'd seen was the visuals and and the music and none of it in order. So we had no idea what the story was. So, you know, we all knew then it was a winner, but we had no idea it was a winner until we actually saw it. Yeah, I can't imagine being in that studio and looking at the screen and seeing, you know, these gold robots and and lightsabers and and these little Jawas walking in the desert. And you're like, what? How do these all connect? Especially if you don't watch it in in sequence. But I I would imagine just having the music there kind of made you feel like, yeah, this is going to be a big part of of helping to tell the story. Absolutely. And I think this is John's genius, or one of the aspects of John's genius. And, uh, I mean, we've done a lot of other, or, I mean, when I was with the London Symphony, we did a lot of other scores with him. And one of the things I find astonishing about John is you can hear literally two, three bars, I mean, literally seconds of the music from his films, and instantly you have a visual picture of the film. Um, They're all very different, and he captures what the film is all about instantly. Um, It's astonishing how he has that ability. And, you know, whether it's E.T., whether it's Jurassic Park, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all of these films, um, you know, you are in the film, you're in the scene, you're in that environment within seconds. Yeah, it's amazing how you can do that. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary ability. So before we talk a little bit more about Star Wars and John Williams, I think the listeners would love it if you could talk about your musical background and how you came to be a part of the London Symphony Orchestra. Sure. Well, my mother was a phenomenal cellist, uh, much better than me. And and she uh, was very clear with me because she 
brought us up. I mean, me and my sister, she brought us up in the UK um, on her own, basically, from when I was aged about five. And, and she had an incredibly tough time because the men got all the jobs. She was better than most of the men, but the men got all the jobs at that time. And so for her, the musical profession really wasn't a very nice profession. I mean, I loved music. I joined the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. Um, so, it, you know, music was a really central part of my life. Um, but at the same time, I was also a mathematician. So she said, go to university, do mathematics, and do music for fun, because um, music really is not a good profession. So I went to London University to study mathematics. And after a year, I just absolutely knew, or well before a year, frankly, I absolutely knew it was the wrong thing and I should have gone into music. So after a year, I packed up, went to the Royal Academy of Music, um, spent four years there, got my recital diploma um, and things, and then um, applied for Two orchestras, in fact, um, and that was the Philharmonia Orchestra and the London Symphony. And I'd always loved the London Symphony because it was always at the cutting edge of things. It was doing a lot of film music. It was it was always doing enterprising, interesting, exciting things. And they didn't have a job available at that time. And so the Philharmonia offered me a job and I joined. And three months later, the phone went and it was the London Symphony saying somebody had just left the cello section and was I interested in the job. And so because it was the London Symphony and the orchestra I'd always wanted to join, um, I did join. And, you know, which was obviously not a really good thing to do after three months in a job. Um, but it was it, it was my dream. And, and so I joined up. And it was Andre Previn's era as well. And it was very exciting. It was a thrilling time. We did a huge amount of international touring. Um, Andre was on television. I mean, he was like Leonard Bernstein. He had the extraordinary ability to really engage people with music. So we did Andre Previn's Music Night. So music really was an exciting thing to be involved with at that time. And we were doing a lot of film scores as well. And then, of course, John came along. But just in terms of my own life then, um, after 14 years playing in the orchestra, um, we ran into big financial trouble at the, having moved into the Barbican, a new concert hall. Um, the orchestra was on the verge of bankruptcy. The manager was sacked and they couldn't find a manager. And so they thought they'd get a player to go in for three months whilst they looked for a real manager. So that was when my life changed because I was asked to go in for the three months. And I don't know whether it was because of my mathematical background or what it was, um, because I'd never been interested in management. So I went in for the three months. At the end of the three months, they still couldn't find a manager. And they offered me the job. And I actually said no, because after three months, I've no idea if I want to do it. But after three months, you've got no idea if I'm the right person. So... I'm happy to do it for a year, keep my job in the cello section open for a year. And then if you think I'm the right person, which you'll know after a year, and I'll know if I want to do it, then let's have the conversation again. So I ended up doing it for 21 years until I was headhunted for the job here at Carnegie Hall. So, you know, so in a way, everything about going into the London Symphony Orchestra was actually the decisive thing in terms of defining my entire life. Because if I had stayed in the Philharmonia, I would 99% certainly have never gone into management, and I would never have ended up at Carnegie Hall. So you mentioned that when you started with the LSO that uh, the orchestra had performed on some film scores. Could you talk about some of those that you had done before Star Wars came along? I mean, to be honest now, I can't remember, um, you know, the films that we did, because I mean, most of them weren't... Um, you know, films that have lived on. And I think because everything has become so dwarfed by all the work we did with John, 
Um, I mean, later on, we did some films with James Horner. We worked with a lot of terrific film people. Um, but these are the vivid memories, frankly. I mean, the you know, Star Wars, as well as all the other films with John. I mean, they are the things that, you know, for any musician in the LSO, are the films that absolutely stand out as part of the highlights of one's life. Right. So tell me how the orchestra came to learn about the the job of getting the Star Wars score to be recorded with them? Well, that all came from John because Andre Previn had connected him to us. So the company came to us and engaged the orchestra for that work. So we're not involved in any of the scores. We're not involved in any of that. I mean, we just are engaged um, as the players, um, as the people to play the music. And I mean, what is astonishing about how all of this works is I mean, literally, sometimes um, John would be composing the day before. And, you know, there's tremendous pressure on how all of this works. And you would arrive at the studio, and the first time you had ever seen that music would be when you stepped into the studio and were about to start rehearsing. And within an hour, you would have rehearsed, recorded, and finalized a section of the film, and then that was it, gone, and you were moving on to the next one. So, I mean, it's an incredibly intense experience um, because it goes from zero to 100, um, you know, within a very, very short time. And an orchestra has to be able to respond to that and, you know, and actually be able to read the score, play it, do everything that John is asking. John then has to coordinate exactly with the film because there are lots of moments where what happens in the music uh, coincides exactly with something that happens on the screen. So uh, there is a technical mechanism by which he's able to to connect, uh, you know, his music in that way. So, I mean, having written it to connect exactly with what's on the screen, he then has to make that work, which is very difficult because the, the film is just running and he's got to get the, the speeds exactly right. So he arrives at every key moment where it's coordinated with the action, he's got to arrive there exactly at the right moment. So that is what you're rehearsing and preparing. Um, and then then it's gone. You've done it, and it's finished, and you move on to the next scene. So do you consider yourself a good sight reader as someone who could look at the music and say, okay, I know what it is, I'm ready to go, let's go? Everybody has to be. Um, otherwise, you, you would be useless in this environment. If the orchestra can't read the music almost straight away, uh, then it becomes completely too expensive. It's impossible to do. So everything depends on an orchestra being able to sight read the music, play it, and do exactly what John wants um, within literally a very, very short period. So when you get these scores put in front of you for the first time, do you remember any of the musical cues that you had to perform on the cello that maybe you thought, I don't know if I can get this right the first time. It's so difficult. No. I mean, John, look, John's a superb composer. He knows how to write for all the instruments. So, no, there was never anything where you felt, um, you know, that after one or two playthroughs uh, and a little bit of rehearsal, you never felt that it was something you wouldn't be able to play. No. Um, but he's a great composer, so he knows what the instruments can do and what they can't do. And he's also a great conductor. What would you What would you say uh, makes him 
a great conductor? Well, I think he's able to express, as a conductor, he's able to express what's in the music. Um, he's very clear so that everybody knows exactly what is expected of them. Um, but he also has the ability not just to express through the way he conducts, but through words. Um, he can express exactly what he's looking for. So the working and the work environment is incredibly efficient and fast. And, and you know, everything gets done in the most economical, you know, most professional sort of way you can imagine. Um, so, you know, he takes all the pressure off you as players because he is so good in every way. And as someone who, like me, who first experienced this score after it became a big hit, I can't imagine how the the members of the London Symphony Orchestra were able to sit down and play this music without any expectations. But it, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the way it was, right? That's the way it was. I mean, you sit down, you start work, and you've never seen it before. And within, you know, half an hour, you know it really well. Um, you know, and all you're concentrating on is getting it exactly right in coordination with the film um, and John getting the expression that he wants and the sounds that he wants. Um, but all of that happens incredibly quickly. And that's what a, a top professional orchestra can do if it's an orchestra that should be doing films. I mean, if they can't do that, then they never should be doing films. Exactly right. And I think that's why you guys had such a long history before and a long history after of doing a lot of film scores. Because as an orchestra, you, you all seem like you all speak the same language. You all are speaking to each other, even though it's so many different pieces going on. I would imagine that's something that is just automatically instilled with you guys, with the London Symphony Orchestra. Well, it is. And, and the issue of actually being able to assimilate music very quickly um, you can't do films if you can't do that. And so that because films had been a part of the orchestra's life, because London orchestras, um, you know, have always sort of worked under fairly tight financial constraints. It means you never have too much rehearsal um, for concerts either. So conductors work and expect to work very quickly and get what they want. Um, you know, very quickly and very efficiently and effectively. And so the orchestras are incredibly professional that way in, in London. And that first day of recording had some really exciting music that would uh, later be part of the iconic score, including that main title music. Uh, what was it like to be able to play that main title music for the first time? Oh, I mean, it was dazzling. because and And the interesting thing is John at that point, of course, did not know the orchestra well. But with those incredible trumpet parts that are all part of it, I mean, thereafter, um, Maurice Murphy, our principal trumpet, John, when he was writing music, he was really writing for some of the players because he knew the great players in the orchestra. So as time went by, he would also be inspired by the people he had at his disposal. So he was, you know, he felt he could really write the great fanfares um, because it was such an incredible trumpet and brass section. Um, but he also wrote, you know, the, I mean, things like Leia's love theme and, um, you know, and all Princess Leia's theme, uh, all of these things. I mean, he, you know, it was also understanding the orchestra and the players. So, you know, I think it becomes a real partnership in that way as well. 
So you talked about how great the, the trumpets are with Maurice Murphy leading that and the brass section. Obviously, that's what people know mostly from the Star Wars score. But I, I, I'm hoping you could tell me how you feel the string section and especially the cellos contribute to this score. Well, I mean, again, the love theme, you know, is is in the cellos. And, and so... I mean, he and the cello. I mean, obviously, I'm totally unbiased as a cellist, and the cello cello is always the right instrument to have the most beautiful music on. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Um, um, so, um, but John, you know, the, the fact is, it's it's also the instrument that is most like the human voice. I always think, and so John does tend to use the cello. I mean, you know, for the really beautiful thematic um, writing as well. Um, but as well, I mean, the string section was a fantastic section. It still is. Um, so John, but he writes beautifully for the whole orchestra. I mean, there was some incredible writing for the woodwind as well as for the strings. Now, I mean, John really uses every aspect of a great orchestra. So is I know you've probably after watching that first screening and getting really excited about it and seeing how the the film and the music connected, even all these years later, uh, from a musical standpoint, is there one musical cue, one scene that always stands out for you? Um, I mean, I love the scene, um, you know, that sort of crazy scene in the bar. Um, you know, with the sort of the the, the sort of the wild jazz um, writing. Uh, I mean, that's one of the scenes I love. Um, but as well, I mean, I always remember the the way the the titles were done with that sort of angled, uh, you know, running off into the distance. I think that was the first time that had ever been done. So, I mean, the music running through that. Uh, you know, and that was a phenomenal effect. I mean, now lots and lots of people have used it for films, um, but it was very, very powerful. Again, so I mean, there were just so many things. 
And, you know, and I think the players loved playing great music as well with somebody who was such a great conductor and such a great artist. Now, after the last day of recording, as you said, you know, you realized you had been part of some some really great recording. I'm sure you guys were, were just itching to get John Williams back in the studio to do something else in the future. Yes. Well, then, I mean, all of us knew we wanted him to be part of our life uh, as an orchestra. And so we were thrilled that he loved the orchestra and that he kept bringing all his films back to us for a very long time. And so we did all sorts of things. And, and I mean, John, I mean, not only is he a great artist, I mean, he's also a very humble, uh, very, very humble guy. Uh, so, you know, Stephen utterly reveres John. And I remember much later when I was in the studio, I mean, this was when I was manager and we were doing a film with John and we were about to start and somebody said, hang on a minute, we've just got to get the boss on the phone. And this was not a Spielberg film. Um, we just got to get the boss on the phone. So they made a phone call and then held the phone up and, and then John started recording the music. And I said, well, what was that about? And they said, well, Steven Spielberg insists that whenever John is making a film, Stephen wants to hear the first notes of the music played that John has written when the film starts, even if it's not Stephen's film, um, because he reveres John so much. So this is the effect he has on all of the people he works with as well. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you a year later after Star Wars to sit down with him again and record Superman, because like you said, the expectations for Star Wars were virtually non-existent but they had to be really high for for superman absolutely after that you know we ha we all had a completely different set of expectations and and of course i mean that was a huge success as well i mean a phenomenal film and you know and and again john completely captured it from the first second and so obviously john williams stayed with the London Symphony Orchestra through 1983 and then came back to do the Star Wars prequels and and uh, obviously like he said you said you know he he really loves working with the Symphony Orchestra and, and knows the players very well is there one score or maybe maybe it's a tie it's more than one uh, that you would say was your most favorite experience with him no I mean in as much as I just think it's a little bit like if you say, you know, which is your favorite piece of Beethoven or what's your favorite piece of any composer or your favorite book. Um, I never have favorites because there's just so much that's extraordinary that's been written. And, and that's the case with John. I mean, there's lots of things you love um, in different ways and for different reasons. Um, but I think, you know, one is working with a, a genuine genius in this field. And in different ways, everything he wrote was utterly captivating, but was also absolutely intrinsic to the film. I mean, if you listen to any of those films, and John, uh, I remember we did a show with John once where he actually showed some sections of the film without the music. Then he talked about what he was trying to do with the music. And then we played it with the film and with the music and it is totally transformed i mean music you know particularly when it involves such a great composer 
Um, the music is an absolutely fundamental part of the impact of the film, and particularly the emotional dimension, but also the excitement, the danger, everything. I mean, he sums everything up. Um, and without it, the film is dead. And with the music, it absolutely lives. So... Uh, now, I mean, I can't say there are any favorites, but then I don't have a favorite book. I don't have a favorite piece of music, uh, you know, in my life because there are just so many things I love when you've got the choice of the best in the world. And and John is the best. And, and I love so much of what he does. I can't imagine anybody who would disagree. Everything he does is, is absolutely magical for the reasons that you say. Now, you've worked on him on a lot of scores with John Williams. Is there one score that you weren't privileged to record with him that you always wish that you had been able to, to record? Well, I think Schindler's List is an extraordinary film and, and an extraordinary score. Um, so, I mean, you know, I thought that was remarkable and, you know, and, and we were not involved in that. Um, so that you know, and it's, but it also. I mean, I think what's amazing about Steven Spielberg as well is that he tackles such different subjects. Um, you know, when you think of Lincoln, when you think of that, um, you know, there's so many different things. E.T. I mean, he can take Jurassic Park. He'll take risks and and tackle subjects which most people, if they tried, would fail. And and so I think there's a lot of scores. You know uh, that well, a lot of films that Stephen was involved in, which were remarkable films, and that I think John was always the person he wanted. And and so there were some films later on in John's life. I mean, there were films that didn't come to London. Um, so, you know, because he, I think, I'm not sure what the reasons were, but I think a lot of the work then had to be done in America. I don't know whether it was around union issues or what it was, but a lot more work was being done in America. So, so we, you know, in the end, we were not doing all of John's films. Well, I completely understand you mentioning Schindler's List, but I'm surprised as a cellist that you didn't mention Jaws. Yes, I mean, that's another one. I, I agree. Um, I mean, that was phenomenal too. So, but this is, I mean, the, the interesting thing about this conversation, aren't there? there are just so many great, great films. Um, I mean, he is the person everybody wants, first and foremost. And I think it was Jaws where he became that, that person. And um, and it's just very, I think it's also very telling that, you know, he had the choice of working with any orchestra for Star Wars and any orchestra afterwards. And I think it's a testament to uh, the whole orchestra that you guys were continue to be still, I'm sure, so near and dear to his heart. Well, I think making music has to be a love affair. And it's got to be something where people really enjoy working together. It's not something practical. It's something where you're making something that really matters and that you care passionately about. Um, and and it is a love affair. I mean, it's why relationships between orchestras and conductors are absolutely vital. And if they don't work, I mean, it can be a great conductor and a great orchestra, but if the chemistry doesn't work, then the music doesn't work. So this was a love affair with John. I mean, the orchestra absolutely adored working with him and would have done anything to work with him because it was, you know, it was some of the greatest stuff we ever did. So you're now uh, at Carnegie Hall. Is Was there ever a moment where you asked John Williams to perform a concert there? Absolutely, yes. And 
I can't tell you anything about what we're doing, but we're actually having a conversation with him right now. <laughs> oh, well, that would be great. I will. I would be first in line to get a ticket to, to, to see him performing in Carnegie Hall. That would be absolutely wonderful. Well, I'll be there just before you. <laughs> I guess you would. You'd be, yeah, you already got your seat handled. Right. <laughs> well, Sir Clive, thank you so, so very much for joining me. I really enjoyed this uh, journey through your time with the London Symphony Orchestra and recording with John Williams, and um, I hope it's been fascinating for you as well. Well, it certainly has, and it's lovely to talk about the things that really matter in life. And so I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. I was only three years old when Star Wars opened in theaters in May 1977, so I have no memory of witnessing the spectacle that turned a page on how movies were made at the time. But one of my previous guest hosts vividly remembers being in the theater when those opening notes from the score blasted him out of his seat and started him on a road to a life as a John Williams fan. Shortly after we recorded our conversation for the Iger Sanction episode, I asked Brian Martell about his remembrances of seeing Star Wars for the first time. I was in grade nine, uh, as June, so I'm studying for my final exams, and I was in a position of, I hadn't seen the trailer, I knew nothing about it, but as I was studying, I had the radio on. This is 77, of course, so it's a bit of a different world. And my introduction to Star Wars were radio ads that were just ingenious. It was like a zoom, kaboom! Don't be alarmed, that's just the Death Star destroying another planet. Zhoo, ah! Don't panic, it's just a barroom brawl in outer space. It's all for fun and it's all in Star Wars. So that's all I heard. And uh, so a total ignorance, just met a couple of not even close friends, just acquaintances one afternoon after we had our exams. And it was like, we should do something. Do you want to go see the stupid Star Wars thing? Like, we all, all we knew was the ad. And so... Got a ride down to the theater, paid our money, sat in the theater, had no idea what was coming. And, uh, you know, the 20th Century Fox fanfare sounded and, okay, well, that's Poseidon Adventure, that's Planet of the Apes, I know that. And then, bah, that that first glorious chord was just like, what the heck is this? Because that is not how movie sounded. And just totally blown away by it. The Star Destroyer going over, we were enthralled. It was magical, and as I try to tell people today, how I sum up my experience to Star Wars, we've gone through the movie, and they're attacking the Death Star. 
and all the red red five, all the wings are, are are reporting in. Red five, red three, red standing by. And I'm thinking, this movie can't get any cooler. And then Lock S falls in attacks position, and it's it's cooler. It was just amazing. So a bunch of cool guys and me, we ran down a, a public avenue after the movie, having lightsaber fights and shooting each other with people looking at us weird because that's how excited that movie made us as 15-year-olds. And they didn't even like sci-fi. I grew up liking Star Trek. They didn't. But the coolest thing, score-wise, is Calgary had a, I guess everyone has it, the top 40 pop station. They had it back then. And it didn't take long after uh, June that you would actually hear the main title segment from the album and the Cantina band on the top 40. It was part of the top 10. So you would, you know, you'd get the, whatever this pop song was, you'd get Fleetwood Mac, you'd get whatever, Billy Joel, and then suddenly you'd have the main title from Star Wars playing for five minutes. And then a half hour later, you have the Cantina band. It was just an example of just how, how much of an impact that score had that, that film had at the time. Joining me now to talk about this legendary score is Chris Hatt. You will remember Chris as my co-host for Cinderella Liberty, and he's here with me now to discuss Star Wars. Chris, welcome back to the Baton. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's so good to be back with you again, especially for this landmark episode on surely one of the greatest scores ever written. And as I mentioned, this opening to Star Wars probably is the best opening to a film in history, thanks in large part to the music. Before we talk in depth about it, we should listen to that music.
In a nutshell, Chris, what makes the music we just heard so good? Wow, I just wish I could tell you. If I knew how to make music work this well, I'd be writing it myself. But let's try and break down that first fanfare. Firstly, orchestration. What is it about that opening B-flat major chord that makes it instantly recognisable? Out of the millions of B-flat major chords written for orchestra through the ages, what makes this particular one cause my six-year-old son's eyes to light up and for him to shout, Star Wars, less than a second into that opening note? Well, it's so rooted, not just in the key of B-flat, but by the note of B-flat. Aside from the brass chord in the loudest part of their registers, almost every instrument in the orchestra plays that single note at the extreme end of its range. So low instruments play very low, high instruments play very high, achieving this effect, although it's impossible to play with just two hands, but something like this. Secondly, rhythm. This explosive opening is immediately followed by a cacophony of different rhythms that deliver that opening fanfare. In a technique Williams will use throughout the score, the unpredictable nature of these cross rhythms tells us we're experiencing something never before seen, whereas the strong tonal centre of B-flat major tells us that we're already part of it. We're not just along for the ride, but we're sitting up there in the front seat. And despite all the science fiction and fantasy, it's just a simple story about people like you and me. Sorry, Jeff, you asked me to describe this in a nutshell. I'm not even 10 seconds into the queue. I think my best short answer is that somehow John Williams managed to summon perfection from every musical and dramatic quality that a piece of music can possess. And even then, he achieved a quality that's still greater than the sum of those parts. Yes, Chris, I know that you and I could talk for hours and hours just on that opening just 10 seconds, not just we to could. mention the opening 90 seconds. So to talk more about that B-flat opening chord, it's very similar to the B-flat note that concludes the 20th Century Fox fanfare that played during the studio's logo and the title card mentioning Lucasfilm. That was intentional by John Williams. The fanfare for 20th Century Fox was composed by Alfred Newman in 1933 and expanded in 1953. As a way to connect the past with the future, the fanfare and the Star Wars opening are linked by that B-flat. And then it's no holds barred. After that B-flat blast, I always think of that three-second musical interval you talked about before the main theme starts playing as the orchestra getting their instruments tuned and prepped the way they do before every concert. It's a little atonal in the brass section, but once everyone has their bearings, the entire orchestra clicks together and plays just as we expect the London Symphony Orchestra to play. Chris, let's discuss the actual main theme. Well, so much musical analysis has been written just on this collection of notes. 
But what grabs me instantly is the emotional quality of a melody that's constantly reaching up to greater heights of heroes, villains fighting to win the other over on a galactic scale. Just the first seven notes of this main theme tell a story. This story, we're reaching out to grab a higher branch before retreating and then pushing even further. When the odds seem impossible for our heroes, it's this melody that tells us that in fact anything is possible. When I was last on your podcast, Jeff, I spoke about Williams's use of major triads to spice up an otherwise simple melody line. Basically, the technique is to build a major chord underneath every note or phrase without worrying about the resulting wrong notes against the key of the piece. This method of composition is used throughout the Star Wars scores and a good example is here in this main theme. The melody is very tonal and could be played using a very simple chord sequence such as this. plays with our ears by introducing these major triads at the end of the phrase that gives us a sense of the unpredictable. My favourite examples of this come later in the main title. The first represents the rebellion. And the second is those eerie space chords that come at the end of the crawl when we pan down the starfield to start the story. These space chords sound like this. The sound is dissonant and yet tonal at the same time. To give, it gives us these conflicting feelings that I've mentioned before. So how does he do this? Now, simply he takes two unrelated major triads. Let's take two major triads that are absolutely close together. That one and that one. They're a semitone apart. What Williams does, he lays them on top of each other, creating obviously a very dissonant sound, but then by spreading those notes across the piano or across the orchestra, we get this. Exactly the same notes as this, but spread across the piano in different voicing. So opening up these chords creates this otherworldly sound that we can still relate to. I say simply, obviously, it takes a genius for him to be able to pull this off and requires also top-class orchestration to hear, hear that, that strange dissonance and but keep it relatable to what we can hear as Western harmony. This use of mixing harmony and dissonance is a recurring theme in Star Wars and I'm sure I'll be mentioning it more as we go on to look at other parts of the score. Now, let's look at the B section of the theme. Now, this seemingly simple melody serves two more important aspects of the story that's about to unfold. No one can deny the romantic quality of this sweeping melody, but for those of us who just want to see spaceships and dogfights, that musical shape of the tune could quite easily represent the Millennium Falcon ducking and weaving to avoid that Imperial laser fire. Williams even throws in those major triads again. That reminds 
us that even when those heroics are taken away from the music, this is still Star Wars. That is absolutely brilliant. My favorite part of the performance on the opening music in Star Wars is the second performance of the main theme, which is this time on French horn. On the trumpet earlier, I felt Luke's heroism. When I hear it on the French horns, I feel the yearning inside Luke to rise above his station, reaching for a life out in the galaxy, just as that French horn is reaching for that high G note. You'll never hear the French horn perform as well in the opening of the Star Wars films that would follow. I agree. It's so beautifully written and so wonderfully played. The French horn is used throughout the Star Wars scores, not only for its bombastic brassy sound, but also for its more tender, as you say, yearning quality. Let's not forget this melody was written very much as Luke's theme, and the first time we're introduced to this character in the movie, we hear it quietly on solo French horn. George Lucas saw this character very much as a screen version of himself. Note the similarity in the names, Luke S. and Lucas. And both leading protagonist and director share that wanting, yearning quality. Yeah, it's a very interesting comparison. So, there's been speculation about the creation of the main title music that I hope to piece together on the show today and hopefully settle once and for all the mystery surrounding the opening notes of the score. To start, it's important to know that the opening music you hear in the finished film was not recorded in one take. The main title music was recorded in five takes on March 5, 1977, with the final version edited together from the last three takes. I'm going to play part of the first take, and you'll hear the major differences between this and the final version put in the film. The big difference is what you hear at the beginning. Instead of just starting with the B-flat blast, the orchestra works its way up to it from a G-flat chord, with the orchestra playing the same notes after that with differing orchestrations. There's a story behind that, and Rob Hudson wrote about it on his Twitter account. He said, and I quote, There's a rough early version of the crawl where the Star Wars title is actually stationary for a moment. Then, it tilts back and begins to move in line with the rest of the crawl text. My own speculation is that maybe John Williams wrote the music to that version, with the pickup bar matching a fade-in to the static Star Wars logo. End quote. So, the G-flat swoop was to accompany the fade-in logo, followed by those three seconds of musical cacophony to accompany the logo's tilt before the main title took over. That was the way the main theme started for three takes. Then, something happened between takes three and four. I don't know how long the orchestra sat there waiting in the studio, 
but suddenly they got new instructions on how to play. And here's how take four of the main title music started. It's at this point in the timeline that I have been unable to find definitive sources on what happened and when it happened. My theory is that George Lucas already had a couple of different options for the beginning of the movie before William sat down to write the score. There was the fade-in to the Star Wars logo, as well as the sudden appearance that we all know today. I believe that Lucas showed John Williams both versions and asked him to record music to fit both of them. So takes four and five were to fit in with the second version, just in case Lucas decided to use that one. Ken Wanberg, who would be Williams' longtime music editor, probably had to wait until the final, final edit of the film to know which version of the opening Lucas wanted. That meant Williams was long finished with Star Wars and directed Wanberg from afar on the takes needed to make the music fit the imagery that would blast onto screens on May 25, 1977. So Chris, with all that, what do you think of my timeline of recording the main title music? Jeff, I reckon you're spot on with what happened in that studio. Although, I have to say, whereas I generally find alternate takes fascinating in film music, the idea that my favourite musical moment in film history could ever have been anything else is something hard to imagine. These alternate versions I find almost impossible to listen to. I like listening to it and hearing the actual parts of each take that were used in the final edit. It makes me appreciate the role of the music editor even more. So we've talked a lot about the main theme, and as you said, it's primarily associated with the film's hero, Luke Skywalker. After the opening, the theme only appears when Luke is on screen, at least in the original Star Wars film. What I find interesting is how Williams develops the theme after the opening. He reached back to his work on the Cowboys five years earlier and the way he developed the theme for the young boys who travel with John Wayne's character as they herd a bunch of cows. That theme stays in the woodwinds for about two-thirds of the film until the boys essentially grow up and become men in the climactic scene. That's true for Luke's theme as well. Chris, you mentioned that it's played on French horn, as well as flute and strings the first time we hear it in the main body of the film, suggesting innocence with a hint of desire to rise above his lot in life.
with the exception of some brief moments before and after the double sunset scene, Luke's theme disappears from the film for a full hour. The Force theme and the Rebels theme take center stage until our heroes try to get back to the Millennium Falcon inside the Death Star. And this is my favorite moment of the Star Wars score. It happens as Luke and Leia are chased by stormtroopers in the Death Star and are held up at a deep chasm. Just as Luke figures out a way to cross the chasm, he and Leia are shot at by stormtroopers. And here is when Luke grows up and Williams gives us the payoff, a strong rendition of Luke's theme that is pretty much a reprise of the opening titles. Williams has described this moment as, quote, Errol Flynn in space. And he's referring to the actor who played Robin Hood and swashbuckling pirate Peter Blood in Captain Blood. Scenes in those movies had great music by Eric Wolfgang Korngold that Williams has said he drew inspiration from in this scene, especially the great brass fanfare when Luke and Leia swing across the chasm. All of these are such great moments. It just makes me want to watch the film again for probably the hundredth time. Like you, I absolutely love Chasm and Crossfire. And interestingly, this was the very first cue to be recorded during those Abbey Road sessions. The London Symphony Orchestra was no stranger to film scores, having been recorded them since the, the silent films of the 1920s. But the complexity of this cue must have raised a few eyebrows on the day. Surely film music shouldn't have quite so many notes. Jeff, you asked me to pick out a favourite moment from the score, which is so hard when I'm so familiar with every single note, but there is one cue that immediately drew my attention when I first heard the soundtrack, and it's really what first got me into appreciating film scores. I was studying music at college and was particularly fascinated with 20th century tonal music, especially the harmonies of Alban Berg and the rhythms of Bella Bartok. A friend of mine had the Star Wars double album and was insisting that there were many similarities between Star Wars and Berg's Violin Concerto. I was very sceptical. I loved the movie and of course I knew the main themes, but it had never occurred to me to listen to film scores away from the screen. Once I'd reluctantly agreed that there was indeed a similarity there, I then borrowed the album, had it on repeat for a good week and my love of film music was born. And the cue that grabbed me straight away was Ben Kenobi's death and TIE Fighter attack. 
This remained my favourite piece of film music I'd ever heard until, expanding my collection, I then came across the asteroid field cue from The Empire Strikes Back. And to this day, I think that's the single greatest film music cue ever written. Oh yes, I ranked that in my top five of all great film music moments. Absolutely, it's fantastic. They don't get much better than that. But back to the moment in this movie when Darth Vader kills Ben. I love the license taken by Williams, not just to use themes that relate to the scene, but to go with his instincts as to what provides the most emotional response. I know it's possible to dream up all sorts of tenuous reasons why Princess Leia's theme underscores Ben's demise, but I like to think Williams just felt that was the right melody for the moment. Here is that theme played with all the emotional force you'd expect from such a scene, and just hear those horns blasting up to the very top of their register. Then the action starts to ramp up. The rebel fanfare appears over a driving beat from the lower strings. Already we know that the road ahead will be tricky as the melody and accompaniment work against each other, one working in two beats per measure and one in three. Then after a quiet wind and horn statement of Ben's theme as Luke grieves, it's back to the action with a long passage of rising tension that takes us into the TIE fighter attack. Again, this is all about that combination of harmony and dissonance. The brass hammer out these descending major triads. Here they are on the piano. Whereas the bass line rises completely at odds with the brass. Again, creating that unexpected yet relatable excitement from the viewer. 
This has to be one of the most famous action cues in film music history, but I challenge anyone to sing it accurately, either rhythmically or melodically. Although, I have to say, Peter Griffin did a good job of attempting it in Blue Harvest. Come on, kid, we're not out of the woods yet. Here they come! Yes, Peter Griffin did a really good job of that. And just to mention Blue Harvest, I really love the homage that uh, they give to John Williams at the beginning on the Binary oh, Sunset cue. It's they have brilliant. they have a cartoon of them playing it. That's yeah. great. <laughs> it's fantastic. So those staccato notes in the brass create a one-off melodic theme that really resonates for me. Maurice Murphy was the principal trumpet player for all the Star Wars scores, and he brings out the best in his fellow players here. The scene drives forward primarily because of those trumpets. Another great moment in the Star Wars score comes at a pivotal moment for Luke. He realizes that his aunt and uncle are in danger and takes off alone to find his home burned. We also see the burned bodies of Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru as William scores the moment briefly with a stinger in the low register on brass. But even though the moment is somber and a bit scary as we realize what the stormtroopers are willing to do for Death Star plans, Williams turns the mood on a dime and decides to play the Force theme on strings, a theme not previously used for anything associated with Luke up to that point. Why does Williams use the Force theme at the end of that scene? It's simple. Luke's life on Tatooine is gone with his aunt and uncle dead. The only choice, as he says in the next scene, is to go with Obi-Wan Kenobi and become a Jedi. The Force theme's performance as he stares at his burning home is telling us what's going on in Luke's mind. Kudos to Williams for the musical choice there. And I really must mention another watershed moment in this Star Wars score. It comes when the Millennium Falcon escapes Tatooine and is chased by two Star Destroyers. The first time we see these Star Destroyers, Williams gives us a hit on the timpani drum, followed immediately by a clash on the cymbals. This boom tzzz, as it's called, it's B-O-O-M-T and then maybe 
two or three Z's, shows up many times in John Williams' scores after this, so much so that it has become one of his signatures. I had always wondered where the idea for it started, and when I began this podcast, I made a note to search for the origin of the boom tzs, and I have found it. And you're welcome, friends. Star Wars has touched so many people's lives over the past 42 years that it's impossible to imagine a world where it never existed. Its impact spilled over into the mainstream, one of the first times a film score had done so. The album and the performance of the main title both reached number 10 on the Billboard 100. The album has sold more than 1 million copies, a difficult feat for an album that has zero songs on it. And then came the disco cover by Mecco that reached number one. And then, of course, there's this. Let's go out with something really hot for these folks. A big hit out of 77. Ah, Star Wars. Nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars. Don't let them in. Chris, I haven't listened to the Disco Star Wars song in at least a decade. I forgot actually how catchy it is. Oh, the disco version. You know, just when you embrace the fact that Star Wars is a timeless classic that will never age, the disco theme appears, reminds us we're still firmly in the 1970s. And there were people out there that would still choose this one over the original arrangement. And on the same subject, let's not forget that we'd be treated to a disco version of the Close Encounters theme later that year, which even made it onto the original soundtrack album. And most bizarrely, a few years previously, Disco Jaws, arranged by the great Lalo Schifrin. Oh dear. I listened to Disco Jaws when I was doing research for the Jaws episode. I figured the less said about it, the better. Quiet. Just as I did with his two previous Oscar wins, I'm going to play the audio of John Williams winning the Oscar for Star Wars. The nominees this year are John Williams for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, George Delarue for Julia, Maurice Jarre for Mohammed, Messenger of God, Marvin Hamlish for The Spy Who Loved Me, John Williams for Star Wars. And, and the, the winner, winner is, is Olivia. Oh, big moment. Goodness. The winner is John Williams for Star Wars.
much, George Lucas and Gary Kurtz, for the opportunity of composing a score for your marvelous film. And to Lionel Newman, Herb Spencer, and the London Symphony Orchestra for a splendid performance, and I think a great recording by Eric Tomlinson. And for myself, ladies and gentlemen, my warmest thanks for this uh, very treasured award and marvelous moment. Thank you. What made that night more gratifying for Williams was receiving it from his mentor and very good friend, Henry Mancini. It's shocking to me, Chris, that the audience didn't give him a standing ovation for the award. Indeed, it is shocking. I've always felt that the Oscars can be far too preoccupied with talent visible on screen, and categories such as best score are often relegated to the technical side of things rather than the creative. In the UK, we always get to watch at least a couple of hours of highlights from these ceremonies, but more often than not, this category is squeezed into an other awards tonight included clip before the ad break. Yeah, that's a shame. Well, at least we have the clips on YouTube. And I do want to bring up the point that the audience has stood up for um, a winner of the original score award very recently, and that was Ennio Morricone when he won for the Hateful Eight. But I ah, think they were just true. standing mostly because he was in his 80s, and they were just excited that you know <laughs> an old guy could, could stand, stand up. up. Yeah, he could stand up, exactly. <laughs> so we close out this episode of Star Wars, and I hope you have enjoyed this stop on our journey through John Williams' illustrious career. It continues in the next episode with an equally iconic score, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In the meantime, please write a review on Apple Podcasts and comment on the show in the Podbean app. You can also send me an email anytime at jeffswim at aol.com. Chris, thanks again for joining me. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks, Jeff. It's always a pleasure. And if I may say one other thing that struck me through listening to your podcast, it's, you know, it's easy to appreciate the genius of John Williams' through listening to his music, as we are always afforded the luxury of having the finished result as our first impression. During your Jaws episode, you remarked on how surprised you were that Williams immediately saw the potential of the movie, when even Spielberg has said that half of the success of the film could be attributed to the music. And I just thought, surely that intuition shows almost as much genius as writing the scores themselves. That skill of watching a work in progress without the glossy finishing touches that we can take for granted, and identifying what will or will not work. If anyone listening to this knows someone who needs convincing of the power of film music, get them to watch the final throne room scene from Star Wars with the sound turned off. The thought that this would eventually be one of the most iconic scenes in movie history is a strange one to say the least. So thanks again, Jeff. You're doing such a great job with this podcast. Only about a hundred more to go? Actually, just under 70 episodes remain, so maybe getting closer to the finish line, but still not halfway there. And it just gets better. As I said, we're going to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind in the next episode. Until then, the baton is down. (laughs) 